Mic is on? It is on. All right. Hey, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, I was just uh, just a moment ago talking to some guys at my table over here and tell them about my background. I can't believe I've been at this for this long. I did the Denver Nuggets on the radio and TV for 18 years. Before that, I did two years the Minnesota Timberwolves, both radio and TV. And now this past season, uh, last season, I was my first year with the Colorado Rockies. So 21 years in professional sports and several years before that uh, as a broadcaster doing high school stuff and college stuff. And I figured out just a moment ago, um, 20, probably 25 years in the business, I still got 30 years to go to catch Al McCoy uh, of the Suns. <laughs> How long has that guy been doing the Suns, by the way? Since their inception? Is that, has he really? So that's what, almost 40 years? 41 years. That, that is amazing. Wow. I was, 1960 he started? Wow. All right. I keep thinking Al's going to age every, when I see him, but he never seems to age at all, and he still sounds great on the radio. I listened to him the other day on, on the Internet. So you guys got a real gem in Al McCoy doing the, doing the Suns. Um, as I mentioned, uh, I've been in broadcasting for a long time, did high school games in small college in minor league baseball and basketball for many years, then got a big break in 1990 when I started with the Minnesota Timberwolves, and then I got a job in Denver doing the, the Denver Nuggets for uh, 18 years. My goal, my dream was always to do Major League Baseball. I played college baseball. I coached on the college level for several years. And at the age of 50, unbelievably, I got the, the Rockies job last year. Uh, very blessed to get it, obviously. Very fortunate to get it in that there were 227 applications for the job. Now, a lot of those you could throw out because they weren't qualified, but there was a good 150 to 200 people that I had to ace out somehow to get that job uh, last year, and I was able to do that. Um, and I feel extremely fortunate. Uh, there are some guys here, whenever I speak at these groups, they always get questions about the teams and the travel and the lifestyle and all that. And I can tell you guys that in general terms, uh, the broadcasting business at this level is as fun as it looks. It is a great job. And I was uh, flying in here this morning uh, thinking about um, this presentation and maybe talking about my career just briefly before I talk about something else. And I thought, boy, is there another job that you would really like to have besides this one? And I honestly can tell you guys, I, I don't think I, I, I want a, a different job than this. This is my dream job. It is extremely fun, enjoyable, rewarding, and I don't know if I'd trade it for anything else. I think everybody would like to make more money in their job, but I don't think I would like to trade jobs with anybody. It is a, a fantastic business. And if I don't know if there's anybody in the room that's in this business or wants to get into it, but it's very, very rewarding. It's a lot of fun. And the doors that can open, like being in here today to speak to you guys, are, are pretty incredible. But the, the truth is, I was not asked to come and talk about the Rockies in Denver or the Denver Nuggets or about sportscasting or about professional sports at all, but to talk to you guys about something at least more important to me, and that's a Christian conviction that I have. And, and uh, my story and my history is a little bit different than some of the guys you might talk about who mention that, that name Jesus Christ to you. I want to tell you how I got from point A to point B. Point A being 21 and a half years ago when I had no spiritual foundation whatsoever. I mean nothing. I didn't go to church. I didn't pick up a Bible. I, did, I, didn't, I stayed as far away from that as I possibly can. And 21 and a half years uh, later, here I am speaking to you guys at the CBMC in Phoenix, which is, to me, pretty amazing. That defining moment in my life was a, a, a plane crash. I survived a plane crash in July of 1989. I want to tell you about that event. And I was thinking about this flying in here this morning as well. I, I've shared this story, and I know that some of the guys that invited me have probably heard this story already, but I have an 18-year-old daughter, 
And I'm guessing this was probably 10 years ago, maybe 11. She was probably 7 or 8 years old. And I was at home one night on a Saturday night getting ready to talk uh, to a church group on Sunday morning. And it was back when the Nuggets were not very good at all. And I was in the middle of a long season. The Nuggets in the 1997-98 season went 11-71. and 71. So if you think the Suns have had some rough years, how about 82 game schedule? We won 11 games, and I'm telling you, we rallied to win 11 games. At one time, at, at one time we were five and 59. I remember that, and we had not won a road game. We at one point were, I think we were 0 and 37 on the road, and we finally won a couple games at the end. We rallied to win 11 games. The worst record in NBA history is nine wins. We flirted with with setting that record for futility. So in the middle of this season, 97-98 season, it's bad. I mean, it, it really is. It's the talk of the town. Are they going to set the record for worst ever and all that? So I'm at home on a Saturday night, middle of the season. My daughter Maggie is asking me about the event I'm going to speak at the next morning. And I'm answering her question. She said, we can talk to you. And I told her the church. And she said, well, Dad, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, I'm going to talk about the plane crash that I survived. And uh, the result of it was my becoming a Christian and my testimony. And she was fine with that. And she hesitated for a little bit. And she said, are you going to talk about the nuggets at all? And I said, well, no, I'm probably not. And then she pauses again. Now, this is an eight-year-old girl. She looks at me and she says, Dad, you know what? It's a good thing you were in a plane crash because nobody wants to hear about the nuggets. <laughs> that's, how, that's how bad it was. My own daughter thinks I was good in, it was good I was in a plane crash. I wouldn't have to talk about my employer. That, that's how bad it was for a while. Actually, the last eight years I did the Nuggets, it was great. Carmelo Anthony was drafted uh, by the Nuggets, third overall, and uh, we have made the playoffs. I shouldn't say we. I'm not with the franchise anymore, but the team had made the playoffs eight consecutive years, which is a franchise record, and I'm not sure what's going to happen now with Carmelo Anthony. I'm sure if you follow the NBA, you hear about the trade rumors, something's going to happen, and I think it's probably going to happen fairly soon here, but that's all on a side now. Now I'm with the Rockies, who have a good team, and we just spent $239 million signing Troy Tulowitzki and Carlos Gonzalez. Hopefully that'll, that'll pay off as well. And uh, sorry about the Diamondbacks, by the way. No, I'm just, I'm just joking. Actually, they, they had a chance to, to bounce back, I think. They get some pitching. You know, I think they'll be, they'll be just fine. I want to tell you about this plane crash that I survived, and not necessarily for the event itself, but more importantly, at least to me, what's happened since then. Uh, in July 1989, July 19 of 89, so we're talking about 21-plus years ago, I was working for the Continental Basketball Association, which back then was the NBA's minor league system. We were based in Denver, office based in Denver, and I was a deputy commissioner of the league. Uh, I was doing freelance broadcasting. I didn't have a regular team I was doing games for, but I was doing freelance stuff. I was working a, week, a time or two uh, every week, every two weeks on ESPN, doing some stuff, some college basketball and some, some other stuff. But my main duties in, this, in the summer of 1989 with the CBA, the Continental Basketball Association. And Jay Ramsdale was a commissioner. Jay had hired me just a few months before this to kind of come to Denver, be his right-hand man. And so we were heading to uh, Chicago that morning, going to make a connection in Chicago, go on to Columbus, Ohio. Next day in Columbus was a CBA's college draft. Supposed to fly at 7 o'clock in the morning from the old airport in Denver, Stapleton Airport. We got out there together about 6 o'clock or so in the morning and found out that our flight was canceled. Now, if you've ever flown and, and you have your flight canceled, you look at the monitor and flashing canceled on your flight, it's a sick feeling. You know you've got to do a lot of work to get back and, and get where you want to go in some kind of timely fashion. So we stood in line for a few minutes, finally got to a ticket counter, and the agent there informed Jay and I that we'd been put on standby status automatically because the flight was canceled, 
for the next four flights to Chicago. Now, United Airlines has a, has a hub in Denver and Chicago, lots of flights between the two cities, but they were all full because the original plane got canceled, everybody's rebooked ahead of us. So we waited a long time. Finally, the fourth standby flight, now it's the fifth one overall, a continent we bumped off of, turns out to be United Airlines Flight 232 that crashed in Sioux City, Iowa. Jay and I weren't supposed to be on that plane. We were supposed to take off five hours before we actually did and five flights before we actually got on, on the one we did. Now, I've got to tell you guys, in the 21-plus years subsequent to this event, there have been an amazing number of people, I mean an amazing number, who have told me they were supposed to be on our plane with us that day, but they didn't get on. They changed plans, they, they canceled, whatever. And I've got to tell you guys, if everybody was telling the truth about this, we'd have 9,000 people aboard this aircraft. <laughs> My dad says that's the most overbooked flight in aviation history right there. So he lives in Florida. He has people down there telling him, you know, I was supposed to be on that plane with your son 21 years ago. And Dad's like, hey, get in line. Everybody else was too. It was actually the opposite for Jay and I. We weren't supposed to be on that plane. We were supposed to take off hours before that. And like I said, that was the fifth flight we were booked on that day. We got the last two seats aboard the aircraft. 296 people were aboard. It's a DC-10, three-engine aircraft, big plane, jumbo jet. Jay's in row 30. And I'm in row 23. There are 39 rows in a DC-10. So I'm about halfway back. Jay's toward the back of the plane. We take off, and despite what the media reported after the event, we were not sitting next to each other, separated by seven rows. So we take off for Chicago, perfect conditions, 83 degrees when we left Denver, no wind, no expected turbulence at all. And we got about a halfway there, about a two-hour flight from Denver to Chicago. When something happened to the aircraft, that I think the accurate thing to say is, started a series of events that led us to crash land in Sioux City. Because I think all of us know probably too well in most major airline disasters, something happens to the plane or something happens outside the plane and immediately there's chaos and disaster. It was not the case in, in, our, in our crash. But we had a defining moment, 37,000 feet, an hour in the flight with no warning whatsoever, and that was an explosion with the aircraft. And maybe to give you guys some idea what this explosion felt like and sounded like. I could actually hear it first and feel it kind of move through the plane after that. First thing I thought was a bomb has gone off. Honestly, I did. I thought someone had planted a bomb, it had been detonated, and we started to drop. Uh, as you might guess, panic took over the cabin at that point. Remember uh, Pan Am 103? It was down by a terrorist bomb over Scotland. That had happened just six months before our crash, and I thought the same, it flashed through my head that the same thing has happened to us but amazingly, to me anyway, at the time, I thought, it's on American soil. So we started to drop. After about 30 seconds, maybe a little bit longer than that, about 30 to 40 seconds, uh, you could feel the plane start to come out of that drop now. And eventually, after a minute or two, we leveled off again. We came out of that dip, we came back up, and we leveled off. And as we leveled off, some of the panic kind of simmered in the cabin a little bit, and we waited very anxiously for someone to tell us, what had happened, and what kind of predicament we are now in. And that came a couple minutes later when the, the cockpit captain, a guy named Al Haynes, who survived the crash as well, become a pretty good friend of mine, got on the PA system the first time and said that the uh, explosion was not a bomb going off, but the number two engine, number two engine of the DC-10 is the tail engine, sits in back and on top of the plane. He said it exploded. He said when it did, it injured the rear of the aircraft, and these were his exact words. He said, I'm having a lot of trouble controlling this plane, and we are in trouble. Those were exact words. 
And then he, he hesitated a little bit for about 10 or 15 seconds, which brought some of the panic back in the cabin, as you might guess. Then he went on to say that we've been given a directive to make an emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa. He said everybody has to be in their seats, seat belts fastened, pulled tight. You cannot get out of your chair under any circumstance. You can't get up to go to the bathroom. You can't talk to people. You have to stay in your chair. We are in serious trouble. And that's all he said. So then he, he apparently gave the directive for the flight attendants to go take us through the emergency landing procedures, which they started to do. Turned out that because of so much damage to the rear of the aircraft, and by the way, the engine explosion was caused by a, a defect in the core of metal that holds the fan blades together in the number two engine, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger with pounding over the years until it basically disintegrated after 17 years of, of, uh, of pounding and in the, in the air. Um, uh, the flight attendant started taking us through the emergency landing procedures, and the plane, they figured out, the cockpit crew, would not go straight, and it wouldn't go left. The only way to maneuver the plane was to take these right turns the plane kept wanting to make on its own. The plane kept veering off to the right, uh, the left wing kept coming up, right wing dipping down, and so they basically flew the plane, the cockpit crew did, by fighting a right turn. They, were, they kept putting pressure on that right wing to try to keep it up and the left wing down. They manipulated the throttles to try to keep us in the air that way. They had, they had never been trained to do that, never, never practiced doing it, obviously, never heard anybody else doing it. And like Captain Haynes said afterward in the press conference a few days later from the hospital, he said, we just pretty much made it up as we went along. So we couldn't go straight, couldn't go left. The plane on its own would veer off to the right. So every time they got on a heading for Sioux City, the plane would veer off to the right and get off heading. They'd have to come back and line up again. We did that 11 times, 11 circles trying to get to Sioux City. And that's why it took us so long. The time of the explosion until we hit down was a 44 and a half minutes. A normal DC-10 landing is about 125 miles an hour, I'm told, when you touch the ground. Uh, we hit at 255 miles an hour. They couldn't slow the plane down. If they th pulled back on both remaining throttles, they were going to lose control of the plane. They had to keep the airspeed up over 250 miles an hour. As well, our rate of descent, our drop from the sky to the ground, was three times faster, I'm told, in the last minute than we're supposed to have. And as well, the plane at the end banked to the right again. The left wing came up and the right wing hit down. So you put those three things together and, and you've got disaster, and that's exactly what happened. We hit down at, with the right wing, actually hit at a 20-degree angle. Right wing hit first. Uh, the, then we hit with a landing gear that sheared off within seconds. We bounced our nose a couple of times. And immediately, guys, inside the cabin, it was complete chaos. I mean, the first couple of seconds after we hit down, it was bodies being thrown about. And some were, some were strapped in their chairs. Others were thrown from their chairs. There's smoke. There's fire. There's debris whipping inside the cabin all in the first couple of seconds after we hit down. And then I, I remember thinking, all right, after maybe 10 or 15 seconds, I remember thinking, all right, I, we've hit down hard. I know there's some people that probably aren't alive anymore. There's a lot of people hurt, but let's coast to a stop, and I'll assess the damage then. And by the time I had that thought, we flipped over frontwards. The, the nose stuck in the, in the runway, and we kind of flipped over end to end. And that's where the videotape picks up. I don't know if any of you have seen the videotape, but that's about where it picks up. The, you see the plane kind of go behind a building, emerge from behind a building, and then you see that it hit the ground and flip over. And as I mentioned, I'm in row 23, and up in a section, the row is about 21 through about 28 or 29. Pretty small section compared to some of the other ones that broke off the plane. We flipped over once and then slid upside down and backwards for over 5,000 feet. So from the time of the 
The initial impact till we came to a stop in a cornfield, it was over a mile. It was about 5,600 feet from start to finish. Came to stop. I'm still upside down in my chair. My seatbelt's intact. My, my seat's intact. I'm hanging upside down. And I buckle my seatbelt, and I drop down the floor, ceiling now because we're upside down, and I didn't see any way to get out. Emergency exit was off to my right where these guys are. It's gone. There's nothing left of it. So I see this wall of smoke coming from the front of the plane to the back. There was a fuel tank that had ruptured in front of us, and this, it was slowly moving from the front to the back of the plane. I had no choice to turn around and go this way. And when I did, I, I huddled up with a couple other guys who I've become good friends with now, and one of them said to the other two of us, let's just start helping some people, and maybe we can find a way out in the process. We started literally, guys, hurting people like cattle to the back of the plane, many of whom we, we knew were hurt very seriously, and, and we had to leave some behind. And we found ourselves trying to get away from that smoke, moving toward the people, sounds morbid, I know, but moving toward the people who were moving themselves whom we thought were alive. And after, I'm guessing about two or three minutes, I saw an opening. I saw it was filling up with smoke so fast now, but I saw a woman kind of move to my right, and I turned around, and I saw sunlight, and I saw people moving through this hole to the outside. I could see corn stalks through the sunlight, and I thought, that's my way to get out. So I kind of moved toward that hole and eventually got out that way. Result of the crash was that 112 people died, 110 that week, and then two more later uh, that day and two more later in the week. And one of the ones who didn't make it was my, my good friend and boss, Jay Ramsdale, who was sitting in row 30, as I mentioned. And Jay got trapped. It broke off from us, and Jay got trapped back there, and it caught fire. And, uh, in fact, they didn't identify Jay's body until uh, Sunday night, and the crash happened on a Wednesday afternoon. And that was after his parents actually had to fly to Sioux City with his dental records and, and get him identified. Guys, bear with me when I say this, because hopefully it's going to make sense in just a moment. But when I look back at the crash, the, the time before we hit, knowing we were going to, uh, the, the crash itself, some of the aftermath on the ground, I left out a lot of details, obviously. But when I look back at the crash, I see for me, and I've done this for a long time now, I see for me the easy part. Honestly, guys, the crash was easy compared to what happened after it. I remember this so distinctly. I, I, I'm, 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 flying, I'm, I'm driving the airport to get on my flight this morning. It just seems like it happened yesterday, but about two weeks after the crash, we invited a trauma counselor to come to our office as a group and speak to us. We knew Jay was gone. We were trying to deal with all that, but a trauma counselor come to our office, and he spoke to us as a group for about 30 minutes or so. To be honest with you, I don't remember a single thing that he said, but I'll never forget this. He pulled me aside in my office, and he said, hey, can just the two of us talk? And I said, sure, no problem. So we sat down, and this took five minutes at the very most, probably much less than that. But he, he, he said to me, across my desk, I'll never forget this, he said, Jerry, all I want to do today is give you a warning. I want to warn you now what's going to happen to you next. I'm going to warn you about post-trauma stress. He said, because of your particular circumstance, what you went through, what you experienced, I can identify, he said, four stages of post-trauma stress you will now go through. Stage one, he called survivor's guilt. You're going to feel guilty because everybody around you died, which he knew. Everybody, every guy in front of me, woman, woman on my left, the guy across the, everybody around me died in the crash. J7 rose back. Survivor's guilt is number one. Anger is number two. You're going to get mad. Second, or secondly is anger. Third is going to be what he called listlessness, where things that used to have value in your life, he told me, like spiritual convictions, which I didn't have any at that point, but your family and your job, they won't mean as much to you anymore. And stage four is going to be depression. He said 99% of the people came out of your crash alive will go through these four stages. Well, guys, he stood up and walked out of my office, and I said to myself, the things that he just described happened to other people. 
It don't happen to me. It don't happen to Jerry Schimmel. Are you kidding me? Tough Midwestern born and raised guys. Every time you got knocked down, you pick yourself back up, right? If you have a problem, you find a solution to it. You don't need a lot of help. You certainly don't get depressed. Are you kidding me? I'll be that 1% he's talking about. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. But as the days turned into weeks and the, and the weeks and the months after that crash, all the things that trauma counselor said would happen to me guys did, they happened just like he said they would. Survivor's guilt hit, and the anger came, the listlessness came, and the depression came, and for a period of 10 months after that plane crash, I went in this downward spiral in my life that I could not stop. I didn't know what was happening to me. I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know why it was happening. Uh, I quit my job a couple months after the crash. Uh, I had been married four years to an incredible woman, and that marriage 10 months after the crash was hanging by a thread. We were so close to breaking up, it was incredible. And we didn't have any money or property, but we had split whatever we did have, and we were ready to go our separate ways. I got six brothers and sisters and two incredible parents. I wouldn't even talk to them. I wouldn't return their telephone calls. All I could think about was that crash, and I couldn't sleep. When I finally sleep, these nightmares just came racing at me. And finally, 10 months the day after the crash, 10-month anniversary of the, of the crash of Flight 232, I sat down in a chair in this uh, spare bedroom we had, this little apartment in Denver. And my wife was working. It was a Friday afternoon. And I sat down in that chair wallowing in self-pity and depression, I'm sure, at that point, and realized for the first time in my life, first time in 30 years, I was 29 at the, at the time of the crash, 30 at this point, first time in 30 years, I had been knocked down, and I could not pick myself back up. It wasn't going to work anymore the way I was doing it. And I, and I know some of you are going to think this is a little corny, but I swear it did happen this way. I closed my eyes, and I just asked God to come into my life. I said, please, God, give me some kind of relief from this crash, some kind of reprieve from it, because I can't do this anymore by myself. Not a, not a specific prayer to get a new job or come out of depression or save my marriage. It was, God, just give me something to hold on to here, because I can't do this anymore. And when I said that, this is the part that you think is going to be corny, but it happened this way. When I said that, guys, something came over me. It wasn't a physical thing, but it was this, this overwhelming feeling of contentment that just hit me that said to me that because of what I had done, the ally I just invited to my life, that eventually, not, not that moment or that night or the next day or any time soon, but eventually I knew in that moment I was going to win every single battle. And guys, I, I knew that like nothing in my life to that point. And that, that's when it first hit me. And that was the first step for me. And I, I slept that night. I got up the next morning and I actually started talking to my wife. We weren't even talking to each other. And I told her what had happened. And I said, hey, and, and my, you have to know my woman, my, my uh, wife was a Christian woman, had been a beautiful Christian woman since the day I met her. And I kind of went along with that and all that. And uh, I said, honey, I'm feeling great about this. And I said, uh, do you have any advice for me? And uh, let's see, we, we dated five years, been married 25, so I've known Diane for 30 years. This might be the best piece of advice she's ever given me in the time I've known her. She said, I'm no expert at this, but it might not be a bad idea to start reading the Bible. <laughs> not bad advice, huh? I started reading this book. At the same time, I started asking a question that I had been asking myself for 10 months after that plane crash and to that point. And that question was this. If I had died in that crash, if I had died like this guy right here in front of me, if I had died like the woman across the aisle, the guy on my left, his wife, coming off their honeymoon, they're both dead. The guy behind me died. Seven rows back, a Jay Ramsdale died. If I had died like everybody in that crash around me, where would I be today? And for 10 months, I thought I had the answer. I thought it was very clear to me. I would be in heaven with God for this reason. I'd been a really good person in my life. 
I'd done a lot of good deeds, and I had worked my way into heaven, that I had impressed God so much with the way I'd lived my life that he would let me live in his house with him. But after reading this book, which my wife advised me to do, I realized that is not what this book says. God says in his inspired word, the Bible, that there is no way you can ever earn your spot in heaven. There are not enough good works you can ever do to, to deserve your spot with God. That his house and your living in it comes from relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And I, 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 entered, I, I entered this book and found a passage that I had seen before. I had never opened this book before and read it, but I had seen it before. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whatever believes in him will never die, but have eternal life. This book says, God says, I believe, that the only way to heaven, the only way to salvation, is through his son, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. I knew that if I wanted to be a Christian, if I wanted my spot in heaven secured, my sins forgiven, I wanted to be saved from my sins, I had one more big step to take. That's to accept Christ as my Savior. And about two weeks later, pretty slow reader, aren't I? About two weeks later, I sat down in that same chair and I said something like a sinner's prayer. I just told God that I believed that Jesus was his son. I believe that he was sent here to die for my sins. And I told God that, that afternoon, in that moment, I wanted to, to live for him. I wanted to open up my heart and let Christ take residence right here. I wanted my spot in heaven secured and my sins forgiven. And, and it took me about 10 seconds back then to say it as well. And you know what, guys? It's the greatest 10 seconds I've ever spent. It's the greatest thing I've ever done. It's the greatest decision I will ever make because this man, Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, has my life turned upside down. I don't want to go right side up again. Are you kidding me? To know exactly where you're going when you leave this earth, to have every sin you ever committed, every sin you ever will, God says, wipe clean, I'll cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, I'll remember them no more. He throws your sins away and forgets about them. Are you kidding me? What an amazing way to live. And better yet, guys, what an amazing way to die. One way to heaven, one way to salvation, and it's through Jesus Christ. And if, and if you hear nothing else today from me, please hear this, guys. Please, I, I just beg you to hear this. this. This is not my story. This is not my take on things. It's not my interpretation. This is God. God says it. So you don't want to believe me, don't do it. But please believe him. And I can tell you exactly what he's telling you today. He's saying, I love you, every one of you, all of you. I love you so much that I gave you my son. I let, I let him be tortured and murdered. I let him die so that you can live forever. In eternity, he says, in a paradise so incredible you can't even fathom it. One way, guys, and one way only is through Jesus Christ. Some of you in this room have made a decision already to accept Christ as your Savior. You've got your sins forgiven. You've got your spot in heaven secured. And I know there are men in here that were just like me for 30 years. And today, if something is stirring in your heart and you want to make that decision, I want to give you that opportunity in just a moment here. Because I know there are guys all across this room. Guys, I was there for 30 years. I was there for 30 years thinking, this stuff is worthless, needless. I don't need any of that stuff in my life. I've got things figured out. Everybody goes, that's my thought back then, everybody goes to heaven, just be a good person. Because think about this, right? Especially, there's a lot of athletes or former athletes in here. What are we told by our coaches growing up? No pain, no gain, right? You've got to work at everything. The harder you work, the better you get. We got Tim Tebow in Denver. His work ethic is second to none. And people say, that's why he's so successful. He works at it. Work, 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 earn your way. 
no pain, no gain. Guys, God says the opposite. He said, you don't have to perform for me. You don't have to do anything for me. You don't have to work for it. It comes through faith in my son, Jesus Christ. Three things happen when we accept Christ as your Savior. Number one, your sins are forgiven. They are cast away and forgotten. Number two, your spot with God for eternity is secured. And number three, you have this incredible joy in your life that, that will overwhelm you, I'm telling you. Think about two words here, and I'll wrap up here. Happiness and joy. A lot of people group those two things together, right? But think about what happiness is. What is that? To me, happiness is watching my kids play sports or when the Rockies win a big game or I get to call that 10th inning walk-off home run or an opening Christmas, presents on Christmas Day, vacation in some exotic spot. With my, I mean, fun stuff. Happiness depends, though, on happenings. It depends on circumstances. Joy, guys, is the opposite. Joy comes from here. It's that peace and contentment that says to me, I got nothing to hide, I got nothing to lose because I've gained everything in Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with happiness. In fact, it's in our, in our uh, Declaration of Independence, isn't it? Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Nothing wrong with it. But I'm telling you, uh, it, it, it pales in comparison to joy. The joy comes from Christ. Happiness comes from happen happenings. You get joy, your sins forgiven, your spot in heaven secured. I want to give you that opportunity today to just accept Christ as your Savior. If you haven't done it already, and something is stirring in your heart, trust me, it's not because of me. It's because of God. Thinking about this, maybe someone else has kind of presented this to you, but today you've got this opportunity to pull that trigger. And I'm going to tell you two things before you do that. Number one is, I promise you, you'll never regret it. You'll never look back and say, man, I should not have made that decision on January 19th in 2011 in front of those guys at uh, Maggiano's in Phoenix. I shouldn't have done that. Trust me, that will never happen to you. And secondly, if you make that decision today, I think you need to pull that seatbelt tight because I'm telling you, for the ride of your life, God will take you places you can't even imagine. Let me give you that chance right now. And I'd like everybody just right now to maybe just close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment. And I want to just say something like a sinner's prayer, something like I said many years ago to accept Christ as my Savior. If you haven't prayed this prayer, just say it after me in the quiet of your own heart. Just repeat after me. And again, there are no magic words here. It's about a decision. It's not about language. But if you want to make that decision today for Christ, like I did, and have your life turned around, your spot in heaven secured, sins forgiven, join your heart. Just repeat after me. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know I can't save myself from my sins. Father, today, I want Jesus Christ. I want my sins forgiven today, Lord. I want my spot in heaven secured. I want that peace and contentment in my heart. Today, God, this very moment, I want to open up my heart and let Jesus take residence there. I want him to be my Savior and the Lord of my life. I want your son Jesus today, God, right now. I accept Christ as my Savior. Amen couple things, guys, before we finish up here, and I think I'm right on time, so uh, my man Bob Merwin will be very happy with me today, I think. Um, there are a couple things. Number one, I sincerely thank, thank you for allowing me to share today. It's a real privilege for me. I know that I'm in broadcasting, uh, and this will help open the door to speak to you guys today, but that's not why I'm in broadcasting. I'm not there to listen to myself on the radio, get patted on the back, and people tell me how great I am and all that kind of business, which every once in a while happens. Um, my, 
my reason for being a broadcaster and being so long is so I could be here with you guys and share the gospel with Jesus Christ. It's my goal in life. It's why God has me where he is today. Uh, so thank you for the invitation to be here today. If, um, if you made that decision, if you prayed that prayer for the first time uh, today, there are a couple things that I'd like you to do. Number one is, I'd like all of you anyway at this point to pull out that uh, yellow card that you've got in front of you. There are pencils on the table, but you've got a yellow card in front of you. I'd like you just to fill that out. The, the second two-thirds, the last two-thirds of that card is basically your name and your, your information there, but there are some boxes on the top that I'd like to just walk you through real quick here. So if you can grab your yellow card and grab that pencil. The top one is please notify me of the next luncheon. So if you'd like to know when the next CBMC luncheon is, you can check that box. Um, the second one, extremely important to me, I prayed with a speaker and for the first time invited Jesus Christ in my life. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time, just check that box. That is extremely important to us. If you would do that, we would really appreciate it. Third box is I would like to receive more information on how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've made that decision already. Maybe you made it today, but you'd like more information. Uh, we will have a representative from CMBC uh, contact you, C CBMC, I'm sorry, contact you. It'll be very low-key. We won't, we won't bother you. If you don't want us bothering, we won't, but we'd like to follow up with you. And that last box there, the fourth one, I, I interested, I'm interested in information on a Bible discussion group. Um, that's something when I became a Christian the first time, I really shied away from. I didn't do the Bible study for many years, and I'm doing it now and have been for a long time. It's extremely rewarding. So if you have an interest in that, that would be great. The rest of it is just filling out your information. Uh, at the very bottom there, it says questions and comments. So if you could say some really good things about the speaker today, that, that would be great. Um, and uh, if you need to know how to spell sucks, I can tell you that too. It's a S, you know. Um, I don't think anybody, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. So if anybody um, has any questions, just stay around afterward. I'll be here for a few minutes too if you want to stay around. If any of you made that decision today, there are some representatives here that would love to talk to you, even pray with you if you'd like to. Maybe the person that brought you would like to be in on that. But um, if nothing else, I'd like you to fill out that card and let us know you made that decision today. I think that'll do it. I think uh, Chris is going to come back and, and close us here. So, guys, thank you for letting me share today. I appreciate it. God bless you all.